we will be starting our Essential 100, going through 100 key passages of Scripture that some of you have heard about. And so the resource will be available on the table on the 24th. And then starting on the 25th, we will be blogging based on some of those passages during the week on the website. And so you can read the Bible and see my thoughts, share your thoughts. It's going to be wonderful. And the whole point of that is we believe that God's word is very special. It's God-breathed. It says in the scripture, all scripture is God-breathed. So the words of God, God-breathed, God-inspired, written down, the Holy Spirit illuminating that word to bring it to our understanding so we can understand it, this is a recipe for life change. Reading the Bible, knowing what it says, it's a really big deal. I can't tell you, just, I can't overemphasize that. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible, it's, it's what God gave us. It's where we get our primary operating instructions, and we rely on the Holy Spirit to illuminate that document to us, the same Spirit that breathed it into life through many people who were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote. Uh, it's, it's exciting. So we're going to be reading that together, talking about that together. And in line with that, as far as preaching goes, I've been talked to in the past about preaching styles. Some people like topical sermons that are about a topic, and they, they prefer topical sermons. I like to go find the topics from the Bible. I like to go through the scriptures verse by verse by verse because it keeps me from avoiding things that I maybe don't want to talk about. It keeps the whole word of God in front of us. And so in the process of doing this type of preaching, I become very convicted by the word of God every week when I prepare to preach. And when I preach to you guys, it's stuff that God's speaking to me too. It's such a gift to, to preach and to go through the Bible word by word, verse by verse, see what God is saying and receive that. And that's my commitment, uh, to, to do that, to always preach the whole scripture to you guys. Always. No matter what. I'll get to the bottom of it, and I'll tell you exactly what I think it says, and not sugarcoat it. So I hope you appreciate that today. So, you all can uh, listen to a sermon about a topic that some people are a little uncomfortable with in public places, but... Uh, most people are not very uncomfortable with in their private life, which is sex. I wanted to see the reactions. Sex. So we're going to be talking about sexuality using the next scripture in our series where the Apostle Paul talks about sexuality. So we're going to be talking about specific things in, in the world system in which we live. We're going to talk about things from the Word of God. Uh, about that. And, you know, I, I guess I could say if, if your kids are in here and you're not comfortable with that right now at this point, then I understand. But the fact is, if we can't talk about this topic in church, where are we going to talk about it? Seriously, people avoid these topics in church settings. And so who does that get delegated to? People, seriously, if we can't talk about it in the family of God, in the living room, where are we going to talk about it? Well, we'll talk about it in school. We'll talk about it with people that don't know Jesus and, uh, and have them teach our kids. We'll learn about it from a neighbor next door, which is unfortunately where I learned about it. It was very shameful. Um, have, have my, hanging out with my friend, we're playing with Matchbox cars and G.I. Joes, and next thing you know, he pulls out something that his dad had and showed it to me, and it cut to my heart. I felt the shame coming out. I knew, I was like, well, this is way I didn't even know any of this stuff. And, um, he, and, he, and I remember, I still remember it, 
driving down the street towards my parents' house on this bike, feeling this weight of this secret that I felt it was a secret, a shameful thing. And he just shouted to me, do not tell your parents about this. That's where I learned about it. Awesome. And then I, you know, as a young teenager, as a, you know, 9, 10, 11, I carried that for a couple of years just kind of on my own, feeling messed up about it, you know? So we need to talk about this stuff in the family of God, not at the, at the neighbor's house. <laughs> That's the same neighbor who, incidentally, um, I, I accompanied him on many misadventures growing up. So um, there's a trailer my dad now owns across the street from our house, and, but we didn't own it at the time. We shot the windows out of that trailer. <laughs> well, I didn't. I just accompanied my friend, and he shot out the windows. So I'm like, I didn't do anything, Mom. I didn't do anything. It was always, I was always the, the henchman the getaway car. So now that you are forewarned, we are talking about sex. We're going to read the scriptures. Ephesians 5, 3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are not proper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Again, the Bible is an awesome thing because all of us, when we read that, none of us are perfect. All of us are really broken. And we read something like that, and we, f- we feel our brokenness. But God always offers grace. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to read an entire article to you. I think this is very important. So this was written by a gentleman named Reggie Osborne. He says this, I stood on a stage in the church I'd grown up in. I can only vaguely remember my wedding, but I'll never forget seeing Allison emerge from the hallway at the back of the sanctuary. Beautiful. Looking up at me through her veil, she smiled. She's always been a shy person, so she should have been intimidated by all of those people looking at her. But this wasn't her shy smile. The tight-lipped, head-hung, eyebrows-raised smile that meant she was embarrassed. No, this was a nothing-else-in-the-world-matters-now smile. We all stared at her. A couple hundred people in a full sanctuary. But she stared down the aisle at me as if we were the only two people in the room. I'll never forget that moment. Her hair was special. I'd never seen it like that before. She was wearing makeup, a small thing, but it stands out in my mind because she wears it so rarely. I remember the veil. I remember the dress. We stood before the pastor, and we went through the motions of the service. It feels sacrilege to say this, but they were just words at that point. The promises had already been made. Finally, you may kiss your bride. We kissed. A real kiss. Nothing obscene, but not a peck either. My wife is so shy about showing affection in public 
that even to this day we don't really kiss when we're out and about. But we kissed right then and there with no shyness at all. And in that moment, on that stage, when we were married, my wife Allison Lynn Osborne said yes to me. Before that moment, the answer had always been no. No in my heart and no in hers. No in parked cars, in movie theaters, in empty living rooms. No to all of those emotions and desires that threaten to sweep away young people in love. The answer had always been no. Not anymore. On July 28, 2001, the answer we gave each other before God and everyone was yes. Yes until the day that we die. Yes, I could kiss her. Yes, I could sleep with her. Yes, I could steal glances at her in the shower because I think she looks great even after five kids. She said yes to me forever. I wasn't asking for a one-night stand or permission to touch her after a party. I was asking for forever, and that's what she gave me, and that's what I gave her. And she's never had to say it to me again. She said yes only once. She meant it to last. I meant it to last. It has lasted 14 years. It will remain in effect until death parts us. Last October, the New York Times published an article describing what sex education is like for 10th graders now in San Francisco. A new law requires that teachers give lessons on something called affirmative consent. These children are taught to ask for consent at every point in a sexual encounter. Do you want to kiss her? Ask for consent. Do you want to touch her? Ask for consent. Do you want to take clothes off? Ask for consent. Ask for consent. Ask for consent. If that's too graphic for you, just remember, this is 10th grade material. If it makes you uncomfortable, then just imagine being one of those 15-year-old kids in that classroom who are hearing those words, and many of them are far more graphic, with other boys and girls their own age, the same boys and girls they used to finger paint with in kindergarten. One student, upon hearing that he needed to check with a girl before touching her or doing certain things, asked, what does that mean? You have to say yes every 10 minutes? Pretty much, the teacher answered. Somehow that seemed extraordinarily out of place to this young man, that one would have to pause in the progression of an intimate encounter to ask over and over again, may I do this now? Those aren't exactly words of passion and romance, are they? So the teacher gave the kids an assignment. Come up with better ways of asking for consent, ways that won't seem so awkward and weird. The 15-year-olds put their heads together and brainstormed. They spent their class time trying to invent less awkward ways of asking each other for permission to have sexual experiences. They wanted to come up with a way of asking, can I do this to you now, without sounding like an alien from another planet. Many of their suggestions were too vague or nonspecific, but finally they settled on one they could all agree on. Two simple words. You good? (laughs) Wouldn't it be funny if it weren't? A boy is about to touch a girl. You good? He tries to take off clothes. You good? Before kissing. You good? Before taking her virginity or before giving his away, he asks, are you good? The answer is no. I'm not good. You're not good. None of this is good. This is not what sex is for. This is not what love is for. We've ruined it. Sex has become so detached from anything meaningful, personal and private, that Playboy is no longer even bothering to print nude pictures anymore. People won't pay for them, because every sexual act imaginable can be freely viewed on the internet at any moment. Our most popular television shows, from Game of Thrones to Two and a Half Men, are full of sex, either explicit or implied. One generation, two generations have grown up in a culture where sex means practically nothing on television and media, and so they've actually embraced the idea that it means nothing in real life. They've heard the message and believed it. Sex is no big deal. They feel totally inadequate and unfulfilled if they aren't having it. 
And we have done such a good job teaching that message that now one in five women who attend a college for four years say they've been sexually assaulted. Or is it one in seven, like the authors of the study tried to clarify in Time magazine? Am I supposed to feel better about one in seven as opposed to one in five? Is that supposed to comfort me? Virtually every single major publication in our country, from Sports Illustrated to the New York Times, has written extensively on the dangerous places that college campuses have become for young women. The violence of sex has become so undeniably prevalent in our culture that now governments feel they must act. They must do something, anything, to teach young people the one truth about sex that should be most common, basic, and intuitive, that it should be consensual. Think about that for a moment. We have so ruined our image of sex that we now have to pass laws requiring teachers to explain to our children that they must be sure someone wants to have sex before they go through with it. I've worked with youth for 16 years as a leader and a teacher. I've mentored youth and cried with them when their worlds have fallen apart on them. I've given them my money, my time, my vehicle, my home at various points. I can tell you this. In my experience, the number one reason why children leave their homes and wreck their lives is a desire for sex that our culture has screamed that they must have. And their parents see it and warn them and plead with them and try to help them, all to no avail in so many terrible cases. Because if there's anything the culture has screamed at children more than sex is for you, is your parents are idiots. Buried behind each act of rebellion is the personal belief that he or she knows better than their parents who've raised them from birth. Kids are convinced that they know more about life and sex than their moms and dads. They're bolstered by their familiarity with sex. A familiarity not based in actual reality, but based on what they've seen in movies, music, television, and the internet. What they've talked about in school with their friends after health class. They are tragically mistaken. They've overestimated their own wisdom. They've embraced an understanding of sex that is deliberately deceitful. Deliberately deceitful. Adults know that sex is not really like the movies or the TV or the music make it out to be. The adults that make their money off of selling sex know that their version of it isn't honest, not in its portrayal and not in its consequences. But those profiteering off of selling sex aren't there to help pick up the pieces when they come home diseased, abused, traumatized, pregnant, or addicted. The culture isn't there to help them after an abortion. It's not there to help them as a single parent with a baby. Here's some food stamps. Here's some government assistance. Good luck. Make sure you buy my next song on iTunes or watch my next show on HBO. The culture isn't there to help them with child support and payments for the next 20 years made to a young lady who, who you don't even know outside of a one-night stand. The culture isn't there to help, help the young lady who never gets child support payments because the father doesn't love her and cares less about being a real man. The culture really isn't there at all. Culture is an abstract thing, an illusion that tells us how we should think and feel. It's built through actors, actresses, singers, advertisers, porn creators, and the like who glorify sex outside of marriage as if it's some penultimate experience to achieve. And when the illusion is stripped away by the cold realities of life on the other side of these sexual experiences, these kids are left to try to piece together a life that's been gutted by a society more concerned about the dangers of censorship than the dangers of the culture we've fostered. And the proposed answer to all of these problems is education. We just have to teach them about contraception, teach them about safety. We have to do a better job handing out condoms. We have to do a better job making abortions available. We have to increase social support programs. We have to come up with medication for the diseases and vaccines and protocols for treatment. It's like running around with a garden hose trying to put out a fire that's burning your entire house down. We have ruined sex. We have taken what was sacred and made it casual, pretending that it won't hurt us. We ought to mourn for what we've done, but instead we glory in our own shame. We boast about the sexual revolution as if it were an accomplishment. We mock those who believe that it belongs only to marriage, where consent has been given and relationships rest in promised exclusivity. We laugh at happily married couples who have never known another partner, as if they somehow missed out 
on all the fun. What fun? Step out of your little world and look at this trivialization of sex and what it's doing to our people. Let me pose to you the same question those kids came up with in San Francisco, a question, by the way, that no one's ever asked in the porn scene. You good? Sexual violence dominates college campuses. You good? 19-year-olds with three abortions. You good? Pornographic websites becoming the main source of a child's first sexual experience. You good? Sex addiction destroying individuals and families. You good? No. I'm not good. Thank you for listening to that long article. People think that Christians, there's a general feeling that Christians are anti-sex in this, in this culture. We're anti-sex. And I understand how people get that impression, because it seems like we're always saying, no, not that, no, not that, no, not that. But the truth is, Christians are not anti-sex. Christians are so pro-sex that they actually will say no to the, to the false and horrible thing that's destroying our culture over and over and over again. Uh, Christians believe that sex is supposed to be between a man and wife in the covenant of marriage. And that's what the Bible teaches. And for that reason, we're kind of categorized in this anti-sex way, but we're very pro-sex. In fact, it says in this passage, instead of all this sexual um, kind of perversion, perversion and stuff, that we should have thanksgiving for sex in this context. In the Bible, there's a whole book of the Bible devoted to, called Song of Solomon, that's devoted to Solomon's sexual experience with his wife, and God is, through the whole thing, approving of it and blessing it until finally the curtains are drawn and we see no more. But that's a pretty, a somewhat graphic book in the Bible that talks about sex and, and shows God's approval of sex and what a beautiful thing sex is that God's created for us. It's something to be enjoyed with thanksgiving, but in this culture, it's become something shameful. It's become something very um, destructive, and a destructive force in this world. Uh, we recently, you know, got this house, and we moved in, and we found that the well had coliform bacteria in it. And I googled that. It's like fecal matter in your water. It's like not good stuff. On top of that, there was mud and sediment in the water. So you turn on the bath and mud would come out. Mud with coliform bacteria in it. Disgusting. So we had to have a new well dug. Christians view sex in this, um, or biblically we view sex in, within the covenant of marriage uh, because that is the thing to be celebrated. That's the way that God created sex to be enjoyed. It's the only way that sex really works. It's the only way that sex really works in the world that God created. Having sex outside of the covenant of marriage is like drinking from the poop water mud well when you have a fresh well giving water. That's what it's like. Honestly, that's what you're doing. Any kind of sexual experience outside of the covenant of marriage that God um, has created for sex to dwell within is like drinking that mud water when you have this clear, uh, clean aquifer to draw from. And it kills people. It kills people. We're going to go through this passage now, um, starting with verse 6. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. We're going for this two-for-one deal today. We're talking about sex and God's wrath in one sermon. So everyone's favorite topics all in one week. Listen, God's wrath is somewhat misunderstood. 
people think of that as God like taking out his, you know, losing his temper, like the wrath of a, you know, alcoholic parent or something. That's not God's wrath. God created this world to operate in a certain way. When we talk about the final judgment, the phrase that comes to mind immediately for me is God will set everything right. That sounds good to me. But part of setting everything right in the final judgment is, you know, undoing and judging uh, the things that are wrong and broken in the world. And that's what God's doing in the final judgment. His wrath is making everything right uh, that, that, is, that is wrong in the world. But God's wrath is not just expressed at the end of times. Uh, this is something that we, can ex- we actually experience every time we try to live outside of the way that God created us or the way that God created the world. If you think about it, God created the human body. If you ingest poison, the wrath of God expressed in your body is your organs start shutting down, uh, your body is struggling, your heart's beating, and eventually you will expire, you will die. That's the wrath of God built into the fabric of creation. God created the world, God created us, God created sex, God knows, God has told us exactly and explicitly how sex is to be enjoyed, uh, how, it's, how it's to be celebrated and given thanks for and what it's supposed to look like, when we go outside of God's way for sex, when we do other things outside of it, we come up with that brokenness that we, that we talked about in that article. And it's like drinking poison. It's, it's uh, destroying the very body that God gave you, and it is disrupting and hurting the world. That's an expression of the wrath of God that people feel even in their everyday lives, uh, people that are addicted to pornography. It's a, anyone that has a struggle with addiction, I have so much compassion for you. Most people struggle with, with this from time to time. It's something that it takes away your sensitivity. It takes away your ability to feel emotions. You know, people that are married and, and uh, addicted to pornography, it takes away their ability to relate to their spouse in a normal way. It just it destroys, it wreaks havoc because it's like putting poison into your body. Your body is not even created to handle it, and so it either kills you or you create a tolerance for it. You need more and more greater things to get your high from it. Um, and, and, you know, the, the effect of sex outside of marriage, you know, it talks about the two becoming one flesh in the Bible. When you have sex with someone, you become one flesh with that person. So what you see when people have multiple sexual partners is, you know, they're kind of like becoming one flesh with this person and then ripping apart becoming flesh with another, one flesh with another person, ripping apart, and they're, they're just ripping and destroying the way that God's created us to be. God created us for one sexual partner. One sexual partner in the covenant of marriage for life. When two people have sex, their bodies are communicating with, their body, according to how God's made it, is communicating with the other person's body, I am yours for life. This is it. This is it. This is my home. This is this is all. This is exclu- exclusive. Whether you want to communicate that or not, that's what's being communicated. Have you? Can you remember uh, in in your history uh, the, what it feels like to break to break a relationship with someone that you've had sex with? I mean, it's an awful thing because you're connected to that person. Like you're 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 like one flesh with them. You rip it apart, and it makes it very very um, very painful. God created the world in a certain way. Uh, he created sex to be enjoyed in a very a certain way within the confines of marriage between a husband and wife. Anything outside of that causes destruction. It's like drinking poison. And I think that everyone here deep down can feel that. On a natural, 
revelation level, yeah, I can see the brokenness caused by violating the Creator's design in this area. I can feel that. So we're going to go through this passage. I'm starting in the beginning. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. You can kind of hear that, right? It just means sex outside of marriage, uh, which means between a husband and a wife. So sexual immorality. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Now, as we go through these, I know that we're going to feel conviction. We're going to feel... Some of us will feel conviction and will feel like, I need to repent. I need to turn to God. Some of us will laugh and scoff at this and say, this is stupid. Uh, bear with me. All of us are broken. We all, need, we all need grace. All of us, from the moment we are convicted by something, can... Everything we've done from that moment and that's behind us can be forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus. And you can be given a hard reset for your life. So all of these things, there's, there's hope in the midst of all of this. But some will laugh at this. Uh, some will laugh at the idea of sex being for one man and one woman for life in the covenant of marriage. Just wait. Sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. Impurity refers to, and this is, this is the context of the scriptures, sexual behaviors that are particularly defiling. In Paul's day, believe me, in Paul's day, sex was trivialized in the same way as it is today. We think, oh yeah, you know, people were a certain way in the 60s and the sexual revolution, then we all got liberated. Not so. This is, history just goes like this. That's history. Paul's day, sex, sexual morality was at a fever pitch. So Paul was writing about a world exactly like our world. We know this, and I'm not going to go into detail, but from stone carvings and things in caves and historians, I mean, people were uh, to the point of uh, people, people would have like a very deviant sexual practice that they did, but they were very moral in every other area, and that was acceptable in Paul's day. They could be someone who, you know, slept with prostitutes or someone that, uh, you know, all these, anything you can imagine. Uh, and, and they could be, you know, in this one area, this way, and then in every other area, upstanding citizen, and that was totally acceptable. Not, not dissimilar from our world today. So, Impurity is any, any sexual behavior that's particularly, de- particularly defiling. Um, Paul would have in mind prostitution. He'd have in mind just anything that, anything that the, the mind can, uh, can imagine to do, which is probably available for anyone for a monthly subscription online. Um, this is what people were doing. And Paul is saying you need to get rid of not only any hint of sexual immorality, but any kind of impurity. And impurity and greed go together. This word greed just means coveting for more. But in the context, it's talking about a sexual greed. More and more and more and more. Uh, More and greater and darker things. And I think we see with the porn industry, this is what they do. They start people, and they just move people down the line. More and more and more. And people need more and more and more and greater fixes. And that's how they keep people going. So sexual greed, uh, these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity. Obscenity can refer to both indecent actions and also indecent speech. But an indecent person is described as someone who has no regard for standards. Nothing commands their respect, and therefore your actions and words are consistently disrespectful. So an obscene person is someone who is expressing in conversation uh, that they have disdain 
for any kind of moral standard. Someone who would read a passage like this and say, this is small-minded, this is stupid, you know, um, and basically talk bad about anyone who would have a standard. Like, someone who would scoff at someone who was married to someone who was their only sexual partner. Uh, Foolish talk, this is my favorite Greek word, morologia. Logia means word, moro means moron. So I like that. That's a true story. A foolish talk is one who makes light of high standards of behavior, thinking that it is somehow funny or sophisticated to tear down anything that is high or praiseworthy or ennobling. If you've ever been on Facebook, lots of people engage in foolish talk on Facebook. They'll take, you know, someone who has a lofty or high standard of behavior, and they'll make fun of it, and they'll try to sound clever and intelligent, just mock it. Like someone would say, oh, you know, God's standard for, for, for sexual uh, sex within, within marriage is ridiculous. That's so, like, old-fashioned. Um, that's so antiquated. That's so unliberated. Those people aren't free who are expressing their sexual love between just uh, in their marriage. Um, those people are silly. And they're, they're to be pitied. You know, these are the type of people that engage in foolish talk. And then coarse joking which is coarse, vulgar humor, which is the lowest form of wit. I've always said this. Don't you hate? There's some really good comedians out there. Like, I love Jim Gaffigan. I love Brian Regan. I'm not going to say I endorse everything they've ever said, but I love them. I love comedy. But there are some comics out there that just are lame. They're just not even... All they do is go lowbrow. Like, you have to go on Urban Dictionary to understand what they're even talking about half the time. It's just lowbrow, and it's all sexual, and that's it. That's all there is to it. It's, a, it's, it's just a low form of way. I can't believe people get paid for it because it's not even clever. Uh, but saying, you know, that kind of joking should not be uh, a part of your speech. And why are these three things about obscene speech, foolish talk, and coarse joking, why are these important as long as we're keeping away from those behaviors? Well, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And sometimes the, the things that we say are very cyclical in our soul. We can start saying certain things, and then they kind of work their way into us, and they lower our standards. We can, we can start talking about things in a way that degrades them and lowers them, and, and, uh, and we can become the very, pers- the very type of person that's saying the things that we're saying. So Paul is saying, be careful. Be careful. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. God's wrath is coming upon people for engaging in these types of behaviors. They're, they're drinking poison. They're, they're reacting. They're having these negative reactions. Don't let these, even these words come out of your mouth because those words are powerful. They carry power and they actually will degrade you as a person if you just participate in them. So this can be a tough one. And again, like I'm convicted by these scriptures as much as anyone. I'm just preaching to you the word of God in its fullness. And I'm convi- this week I'm convicted by the Bible and uh, along with all of you, I hope. And then the reason for all of this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. You know, Paul is writing to a Christian audience, but he's assuming that these behaviors that are talked about in here are, are prevalent, which they, which they were. And what he's saying is, God's actually created you as a regenerated new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus has forgiven of you, you of your sins. And in that moment that you were forgiven of your sins, you were regenerated into a new creation. You're a totally different creature than you once were. The old is gone, the new has come. In fact, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 
Now, do you think these people automatically changed their behavior as soon as they came to Christ? No, they didn't, because obviously there would be no need for this letter if that had happened. But Paul is saying the light that these people were created in, in the Lord, the new creation, the regenerated being they've been created in, is a fact that goes beyond any of their behavior or, their, or, or change in behavior. What he's saying is, live up to what God has made you. God has said you are light in him. God has said you are forgiven and free. God has said you are a new creation. So live up to it. You, that's, that's the grace piece of this. We can feel a lot of condemnation looking at a passage like this. All of us have slipped in and out of these things at one, some point in our life. But now that we're aware of them, it's not acceptable for us to live in them any longer. We must live up to the identity that Jesus has given us. We must, we must believe the things that Jesus has said are true of us. And from this moment, we must live as light in the Lord, live as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And I love verse 10. Find out what pleases the Lord. Make it your desire not to just see what you can get away with, which is kind of what this passage is talking about, but find out in the positive what pleases the Lord. You know, nourish that relationship you have with God. So, for everyone, this passage absolutely speaks to us today. It speaks to our world. It speaks to our experience. And it's not, I know the article was about young people, and I think that's very important that from a young age, uh, children understand, or, or young people understand, you know, sex is designed by its author to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. Anything outside of the covenant of marriage is a sin. It's wrong. It destroys you. It poisons you. It hurts you a lot. God can heal you and redeem you, but if you participate in those things willfully, it will hurt you. It will hurt you. But it's not just for kids. Adults live in sexual immorality, particularly sometimes people that are divorced and they're like, ah, marriage didn't really work out too well, and then they just kind of float with sexual partners for the rest of their life. Maybe even just one monogamous sexual partner. It's equally wrong. People that live uh, that have sex outside of the covenant of marriage, whether they're young children or they're adults, uh, that's, that's a sin. And, it's, and, and God has said that sex is to be enjoyed only within this certain context, within the context of marriage. Whether you're an adult, whether you're a child, whether you're a teenager, God has said, this is a sin, and it must stop. It's not proper for the people of God. You're killing yourself. You're killing your soul. So whether you're disillusioned by marriage, or you're a young person who's starting to think about these things, starting to, starting to think about sex, hearing about sex, um, you need to just stop in your tracks and say, this is something that's going to hurt me if I don't go along with God's way of things inside the covenant of marriage. And, uh, you know, from, that, from my growing up experience, learning about sex in such a shameful way, in a secretive way, and then, uh, and then seeing just the ravages of that, that's just one small thing. But, um, but other young people that engage in sexual acts when they're very young, you know, they carry that. They carry those secrets. They carry that shame. It really hurts them. And so these things need to be brought into the light. God can bring healing and restoration. Some people have, um, you know, they feel hopeless looking at a passage like this because they've been victimized sexually from a young age. Many people have been victimized sexually. And this is not about shaming the victim at all. This is about bringing healing and an understanding of what God's standard is. Because it's not your fault if you, were, if you had a window broken or a door broken in your life and someone sexually hurt you uh, as a young person. Uh, there's healing and there's, there's help for you in that situation. But uh, for all of us, we just need to really allow this scripture to get to our heart because what God wants is for people to enjoy 
God wants people to enjoy sex. <laughs> it just, it just, I just, I just heard too many stories, and I, I, I feel it. I feel it in me. You know, God wants people to enjoy sex. Sex is so wonderful when you're married to someone, and you can. They're going to be there the next day. They're, it doesn't. If you get pregnant, you're married to them. You're married to them. It's not scare. It's not this awful thing, and that that needs to be dealt with, or a problem that needs to be dealt with. God, God, God created sex for good. Everything about sex between a man and a wife is 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 sanctioned and and uh, and near and dear to the heart of God. So we're pro sex. Sex is so good, and holiness in sex is sexy. Holiness is sexy. I'm not saying that when you're married, you have sex with your wife that like everything goes perfect all the time. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's an opportunity to actually come to a fullness of the experience of what God intended for sex within the covenant of marriage. Outside of it is only brokenness. And anything you do outside of the covenant of marriage will hurt your future covenant of marriage. You'll have things you have to work through, difficult things you have to work through many times. Sometimes you have to pray through some of the sexual partners you've had and just... Just ask God to release you from that, that pain. And, that, and God does that. God redeems people. 100% God redeems people. But please, now that you know, do not, do not participate in sex outside of the covenant of marriage. Um, it's only going to cause heartache. God created the world to run a certain way. And when we go against that, we are just hurting ourselves really, really badly. So watch what you say. Watch what you think. Watch what you do. Allow Allow God's gift of, of sex to be something that you can truly enjoy. And you know, I've seen studies where they say that people that are married get more sex than promiscuous people who are sleeping with lots of different people. They get more sex. It's, more, it's, more, it's just the satisfaction level is much higher. It's such a phony. It's like drinking that, that water when you have a clean aquifer available. Just don't do it. So this is the word of God. This is the fullness of my understanding of this passage. God wants us all to enjoy it with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, the gift of sex. And we believe that it's within this one narrow margin, but inside that narrow margin is, is the fullness of what it can be. Anything outside of it is death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, for this uh, teaching. It's a hard teaching. But yet, uh, because we know your grace and your love and your forgiveness, even if we feel convicted, uh, your love is there for us, and you meet us, and you catch us. And uh, you did not come for the healthy. You came for the sick. You didn't come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Lord, uh, I can stand with Fred Bull and say, yeah, I could have been a sinner for so many years, but I was saved by the Lord, saved by his grace. And uh, we all need uh, your grace. We need more grace. We also need resolve that we might stop doing the things that are hurting ourselves and our world uh, and, and, and your heart, more importantly. Uh, so, Lord, give us grace. Help us to draw a line in the sand and move forward in our lives. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. I just wanted to say, if you'd like to find a, find a church where this kind of ethic about sex is not as cut and dry as I've made it today. There's plenty of churches that have lenient standards on these things. But I hope that no one's so offended by this is just the word of God that they think of leaving the church. You know what I'm saying? Because if we're so offended by, by teaching like this, which is very, you know, I realize it's a narrow teaching, only within marriage between a husband and wife for life. 
one partner for life. It's a narrow teaching. If we're offended by this to the point that we would leave a community or get upset, this is the scripture. This is what it means. And it says in this passage, actually, that when we are participating, when we are, we, we are actually participating in idolatry, when we hold up our sexual fulfillment above God's word and what God's word is telling us, it's called, it says it's idolatry in this passage. I didn't point that out. It says, it says that very word. So when you are on the computer, pornography, it's idolatry. You're bowing to an altar. You're bowing to an altar. Uh, when you are entertaining other relationships outside of your marriage, when you are simply dating someone, you are worshiping the sex god. It's not a real god, but it's like a god. It takes the place of God in your heart. Don't let that rule you. Let God rule you. Let the scriptures and, and God's power rule your life and be free to enjoy the good gift with thanksgiving that God's given us. And uh, there's grace for everyone. There's grace for everyone. No matter where you've been and what you've done, there's grace for everyone. I release you to be the church, to be God's holy people. In Jesus' name.